0: Please be sure to check out my YouTube channel for these stories, along with photos of victims, suspects, locations of murders, and more. Jeremy Floyd Stoner was born to John and Karen Stoner on March 3, 1980. At the age of six, Jeremy lived with his family in Vallejo, California. On February 21, 1987, Jeremy was playing with his brothers in the neighborhood when he suddenly vanished. Four days later, on February 25th, a woman whose car had gotten stuck on a levee shoulder on Sherman Island discovered Jeremy's body. He had been tragically sexually assaulted and stabbed to death. A long standing suspect in the case was 26 year old Sean Melton, who had injected himself in the case. He felt that he was helping investigators, but all it did was make him a prime suspect. A witness had even come forward and reported seeing Sean with Jeremy at about 3 p.m., sitting in a pickup truck with his hands tied outside the Bent Hook Bait Shop in Fairfield the day he disappeared. Sean even admitted to a psychologist that he fantasized about taking young boys to the Delta area and leaving them after harming them. He also knew details about the murder that weren't released to the public. Sean was eventually arrested and charged with Jeremy's murder. His arrest shocked his neighbors in the Bailey's trailer court on Benicia Road because they said Sean had never once bothered their children. During the trial, two of the boys who were playing with Jeremy on the day he disappeared said they saw him around 5 or 5.30 p.m., which means the woman who claimed to see him at the store at 3 p.m. was incorrect. Plus, another witness saw Sean Melton at the movie theater in Vallejo until about 3.30 p.m. that same day. This contradictory information caused two trials to end in a hung jury. After that, the judge dismissed the case. Sadly, Sean would never see the date that DNA exonerated him because he died in 2000 from lifelong complications from asthma. From what I read in old newspapers, it appears that Sean was dealing with his own mental issues and that's what led to him being considered a suspect. A Berkeley psychologist was the one who pointed the cops to Sean. Allegedly, Sean had a mean second personality in which he would change his voice and facial expression and call himself Wolfen. Sean's wife would even back this up, saying his second personality was named John Wolf. It was this personality that originally falsely confessed to being with Jeremy's killer, which he called Terminator. Sean had also taken part in the search and was seen at Jeremy's candlelight vigil and at his funeral. He then walked into the police station and gave them a 15-page typewritten investigative report about the murder. It was clear that Sean, who worked as a security guard, wanted to be more than just a security guard. After all this, Jeremy's case would go unsolved for the next 30-plus years. In 2023, the DNA from the case was sent off for advanced DNA testing and linked back to 69-year-old Fred Kane, who was arrested in Oregon. After being extradited back to California, he was charged with Jeremy's murder and abduction. Unfortunately, Kane had been interviewed 30 years ago, but since investigators had tunnel vision with Sean Melton, they didn't look into him any further. At this time, Kane is also a suspect in the 1987 fatal stabbing of nine-year-old Eric Coy in Martinez, California. On January 24, 1987, Eric Coy was riding a bicycle around his Martinez neighborhood when he was kidnapped and murdered. His body was sadly found in a stream near Martinez Junior High School in Contra Costa County the following day. His and Jeremy's abductions occurred within weeks of each other. Jeremy's parents are glad to have some long-awaited closure, but spent the last 36 years believing Sean Melton murdered their son because, as they said, the Vallejo police were 100% sure he did it. Chris-Ann Baxter was born on May 21, 1962, in Chehalis, Washington. In the fall of 1978, 16-year-old Chrisanne was a student at Yontz High School and was having some issues at home. According to her mother, Charles C. Mattson, Chrisanne had run away multiple times after getting upset but would always return or call to let them know where she was. Chrisanne's friends also said the same thing, that Chrisanne would always inform them of where she was going when she ran away. However, September 26 was different. Chris Ann went to school that day, but after leaving, she failed to return home and never called. She also failed to show back up to school the following day. The school had a policy when students were absent to call their parents, but they were unable to get in touch with Charlesi. On the 29th, the third day of her absence, the school was finally able to reach Chris Ann's mother, who told the school about her daughter's history of running away. The school official then questioned some of Chrisanne's friends, who had also not heard from her. She was finally reported missing by her mother on September 30th, four days after friends and family last saw her. On the evening of Sunday, October 1st, a witness reported seeing Chrisanne walking on a sidewalk in the 4200 block of West Rowan. This would be the last time anyone would ever see her alive. What's strange is she lived at 4222 West Rowan Avenue, so was she heading back home? Sadly, four days later, on October 4, 1978, at 11.30 a.m., two Thai construction workers installing new utility poles east of Whitworth Drive near Whitworth College in Spokane, Washington, found Chrisanne's nude body. She had been sexually assaulted, beaten, and strangled to death. Investigators first looked at Chris Ann's boyfriend, but they determined he was in the county city jail at the time of the murder. An attorney by the name of Edward Shaw, who lived in the area, recalled seeing a black Ford four-wheel drive pickup truck parked near the area where Chris Ann's body was found. He said he typically drives by that area three or four times a day, and on Monday, October 2nd, he spotted the truck and slowed down a bit to get a good look. He said he saw a girl around 15 to 16 years old with a man about 21 to 22 years old, but said the couple didn't appear to be arguing. In 1979, investigators looked at 27-year-old Kenneth Bianchi, who was arrested for strangling two women. However, they could never place him at the scene, and he was eventually ruled out. Unfortunately, the case would go unsolved for the next 40 years. In August 2006, DNA collected from Chrisanne's body was sent to the Washington State Police Crime Lab, and unknown male DNA was discovered. It was entered into CODIS, but there were no matches. In 2014, the CODIS profile was updated, but still nothing. In early 2021, the DNA was sent to Othram for advanced DNA testing and forensic genetic genealogy. This led to a possible suspect by the name of Keith D. Lindblom, who was born in 1949. Investigators learned that Lindblom was convicted in 1975 for a violent sexual assault of a 16-year-old female near where Chris Ann's body was discovered. Lindblom denied the assault but still pleaded guilty to obtain a lesser sentence and was released on October 7, 1978. Unfortunately, Lindblom died in a fire on October 11, 1981. Thankfully, they were able to track down one of his children in Louisiana who willingly provided their DNA. From this, they were able to show that the DNA from the crime scene was 320 times more likely to be Lindblom's than anyone else. Sorry, y'all. There is no photo of Lindblom. While it might not be the justice we were hoping for, at least Ann's family finally has some long-awaited closure. 15-year-old Nadine Slade lived with her mother in a multi-family apartment in Far Rockaway Queens, New York. On May 7, 1992, Nadine's mother tragically found her daughter's body in the bathroom they shared with the other family in the complex. She was found nude and strangled with her own bra. With very few leads to go on, the case would sadly remain unsolved for the next 30 years. In 2022, the case was reopened, and investigators requested the New York City Medical Examiner's Office to check Nadine's well-preserved fingernail clippings for DNA. Once they had the DNA results, they uploaded them to CODIS, and lo and behold, they got a match. The DNA pointed right to 58-year-old Jerry Lewis of Shawsville, Virginia. Lewis had been in the adjoining apartment the night of the murder and was a sex offender with a lengthy rap sheet. In 2015, Lewis served six years in prison for breaking into an 88-year-old woman's home and sexually assaulting her at knife point. When investigators traveled to Virginia to question Lewis, they discovered he had violated his parole for beating up his girlfriend. Once investigators had him in custody, they questioned him for nearly four hours, but he refused to admit to the crime. He was then extradited back to New York and charged with second-degree murder. Patricia Marino was born to Jewel Marino in Boston in 1974 and went by Trisha. In 1991, Trisha, along with her mother and three siblings, lived on the south end of Boston. However, Trisha and her mother rarely saw eye to eye, and so at the age of 17, she was placed into foster care and began living with the Price family in an apartment at 21 Henry Street in Malden, Massachusetts. On July 20, 1991, Tricia stepped out of her bedroom window onto the fire escape to smoke a cigarette. It was an unusually hot summer, with temperatures reaching around 100 degrees Fahrenheit, causing the building to be extremely hot, and so multiple other people in the building were stepping out onto the fire escape to smoke and or sleep. Neighbors last saw Tricia at about 1.30 a.m. asleep on the fire escape. Then at about 3 a.m., neighbors heard gunshots, and when police arrived, they found Tricia alone, face down on the third floor Fire Escape Landing, with a single gunshot wound to the head. Miraculously, Tricia was still breathing, but in critical condition. Sadly, doctors were unable to save her, and she was pronounced dead later that afternoon at Massachusetts General Hospital. Police were able to determine that the gun that killed Trisha was a 38 caliber weapon, but they were unable to find the weapon itself or any casings. Individuals inside the Foster family's apartment were interviewed and said they heard a pair of gunshots but weren't sure who fired them. Another man in the apartment by the name of Rodney Daniels, who was dating Trisha's foster sister, Chantelle Price, was questioned, but he claimed he was asleep in the armchair in the living room when he heard the gunshots. One of the family's neighbors quickly looked out the window after hearing the gunshots and saw Trisha lying on the fire escape, gurgling and struggling to breathe, but assumed she was sleeping. Investigators found no evidence of forced entry into the apartment, and with Trisha's foster mother, Linda, saying she always locked the front door, they assumed the gunshot came from outside. Due to the angle of the gunshot wound, investigators believe that her assailant was standing above her. Also, with no evidence of gunpowder burns, it's likely the suspect shot at a distance of three or four feet away. Even though they didn't believe the gunshots came from inside the apartment, Rodney Daniels was still a person of interest. They had learned he possessed multiple firearms and liked to show them off to the kids in the apartment. Linda had asked him to get rid of them, but he claimed they were just BB guns and wouldn't hurt anyone. Then they learned that Trisha had confronted Daniels about the way he was speaking with his girlfriend, Sean Taylor. This pissed him off and he responded to her, you don't know what I'm capable of. He then began complaining to others about Tricia, saying she needed to mind her own business. Linda would then tell about an even scarier incident. She said that Tricia had come to her saying that she woke up one night and saw Daniels in her room holding a gun. According to Tricia, he approached her, pushed the gun to her head and threatened her. When Linda confronted him, he claimed that powers from beyond were trying to force him to kill Trisha. Instead of kicking him out, Linda, a devout Christian, brought all the girls together, including Chantel and Trisha, and instructed them to pray the evil forces out of Daniels. She then once again asked him to remove the firearms from her home. When investigators questioned Daniels further, he denied murdering Trisha and stuck with his story that he was asleep in the armchair in the living room. He did, however, admit to threatening Trisha, but claimed it was just a BB gun. When asked where the gun was, he said he gave it back to his friend, whom it allegedly belonged to, but conveniently couldn't remember the friend's name. Unfortunately, Chantel took Daniel's side and told police when she heard the gunshots, she looked and saw him in the chair where he claimed to be. With no evidence to prove he committed the murder, they were forced to release him. When he arrived back at the apartment, he went directly to the armchair, reached under it, and grabbed something. While Linda couldn't see what it was, she assumed it was the murder weapon. After the murder, Daniels would drop subtle hints about getting away with murder, and that would remain the case for the next 32 years. In 2020, the crime scene was reinvestigated, and after reconstructing the position Trisha was found in, they concluded that the gunshot must have come from inside the apartment, not outside. They also began re-interviewing witnesses. The person who saw Trisha struggling on the fire escape also said he saw a male standing over her. He then witnessed the man retreat back inside the apartment. All these years later, he was still able to provide a physical description of the man, which was consistent with the appearance of Daniels. While Chantel Price died in 2020 from COVID-19, they were still able to find witnesses who said she admitted to covering for Daniels and even knew he hid the weapon in the armchair. She never came forward to investigators because she feared she would face prosecution for lying. With this new information in hand, Daniels was arrested on September 21, 2021, at his home in Georgia. In 2023, Daniels was found guilty of first-degree murder and is currently awaiting sentencing. 23-year-old Shannon Rose Lloyd lived in Garden Grove, California and was described as a tomboy with an adventurous soul who loved horses. In 1987, Shannon was renting a room from 70-year-old Casimar Bursuk in the 11,900 block of Donna Lane in Northern Garden Grove. On May 21st, Casimar discovered Shannon's body and ran to a neighbor's house to call the police. Shannon had been sadly sexually assaulted and strangled to death inside her bedroom. Neighbors said that Shannon was an attractive petite woman with a son and a boyfriend who would often visit her. However, they also saw some less-than-savory characters visiting her at times, and on at least three separate occasions, the police had been called to the house for unknown reasons. Another neighbor said that burglaries in the area were very common at the time, but the house Shannon lived in had no signs of forced entry, and no property appeared to be missing. Unfortunately, with no potential suspects, her case would go cold. 27-year-old Renee Cuevas was the mother of a son whom her family said she adored and often showered with gifts such as candies and toys. Sadly, two years after the murder of Shannon, in the early morning hours of February 19, 1989, Renee's body was found along Lambert Road near the El Toro Marine Base. Just like Shannon, she had been sexually assaulted and strangled to death. In 2003, Shannon's case was reinvestigated and the DNA found at the crime scene was uploaded to CODIS. From the database results, they were able to determine that Shannon's killer was also responsible for Renee's murder. However, it still didn't lead to a suspect. In 2021, the DNA from the cases was sent off for forensic genetic genealogy, and from this, they were able to identify a potential suspect by the name of Reuben J. Smith. Smith was born in Michigan, but lived in Orange County, California in the 1980s before moving to Las Vegas. However, Smith took his own life in 1999 at the age of 39. Before that, he was arrested in Las Vegas for sexually assaulting and attempting to kill a third woman. Thankfully, the woman was able to fight back and escape. She recounted that Smith did horrible things to her and told her he was going to kill her. While these cases will never see legal justice, at least their families now have some long-awaited closure. Thanks for joining me today on Southern Girl Crime Stories. Please be sure to check out my YouTube channel for these stories, along with photos of victims, suspects, location of murders, and more. As always, your support is very much appreciated, and I look forward to seeing y'all next time.